This is how we overcome the moving on the kingdom. Reaching to the world's arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So friends, we are in the middle of our summer series, which is all about hymns and what scripture has influenced or in like, what what scripture are they referencing? Um, So, so far we have done a couple of really like well-known hymns, like Go Tell It on the Mountain, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go as well as some newer hymns like Death Be Never Last. But what hymn are we going to talk about today? So today we were talking about um, a classic hymn, at least for me in my faith tradition. It is what is unofficially the fight song for my seminary, which I love using that terminology because people like, it's a seminary, you don't have teams, you don't fight. (laughs) Um, But it's called And Can It Be? And it's written by the infamous Charles Wesley, brother to John Wesley. Um, I, I said in the last episode I did with Here I Am, Lord, that I, I can't pick one, like, mm-hmm. number one song. I have, like, a list of ten of them that all equal number one. Yeah. This is in that list. Um, and Can It Be is a, is a great, strong, vibrant song that was written after Charles Wesley had his heart strangely warmed moment. Okay. Now, you, you've heard me talk about that before on this podcast. Usually we're talking about John. John, on May 24, 1738, went unwillingly to a Moravian meeting on Aldersgate Street, where he heard Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans being read. And then later that night, he wrote in his journal that he accepted, you know, he knew that Christ truly loved him deeply. Well, Charles had the same kind of moment, not with Luther. Sorry, friend. At least not that I'm aware of. We don't. I honestly don't know if I've ever read the full account of Charles's moment, but he had his come to Jesus moment. His heart strangely warmed three days earlier on May 21st, and so this song came out of that moment. So for those that don't know the hymn, I want to read at least verse one. We'll get into a couple other verses later, but it goes: "And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me, who caused His pain for me, who Him." to death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my god should die for me amazing love how can it be that thou my god should die for me so it's just a whole kind of recollection about how you know charles kind of came to faith what his faith means to him it's it's all about the saving and justifying grace um and the united methodist hymnal it's listed under justifying grace and not under pardon um and like i said it's it's one of my top favorites i love it i love a gourd organist when they can play this loud and proud and we we sing along with everything that we have um to these amazing amazing words of poetry so i'm less familiar with charles wesley and even less familiar with this, with this hymn. <laughs> like, um, I'm sure I've heard it because I went to a Methodist college, so I'm sure I heard it. Um, but I'm not super familiar with it. I don't think I've sung it since uh, being ordained as a Lutheran pastor. Um, but I am so intrigued, and I'm hoping that you have in your list of uh, verses as to like what influenced Charles Wesley, who was really good, from what I understand, mm-hmm. inserting scripture references into his hymns. 
Um, if there's any reference to um, that and in an interest in the savior's blood, like, cause that's such like a, like feels so like banking terms to me, mm-hmm. right? Like I have an interest, like I am now like, I, I don't know. And I'm not sure I have um, good words yeah. to describe what is piquing my interest. Um, but it just seems so like, I like it, but it's, it's it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not the usual kind yeah. of him churchy language i guess it's more banking language it's almost like in different eras of church history maybe different branches of the of the christian family tree you get different sets of metaphors that sort of come to the fore and we certainly live in an era that is more relational but there have been times that have been much more sort of legal that jesus is the one who takes our punishment or jesus is the one who pays our debt almost like we've talked before about um different uh theories of atonement or metaphors that the scripture Mm -hmm. and later theologians used to talk about what does jesus death and resurrection do how does it work or anything like that and sometimes we i think we even talked about in that series some time ago that there's this blurring sometimes the language is jesus is like um someone who takes the penalty for our sin like a like a, a judge pronounces us guilty but jesus has to endure the sentence and other times people talk about Jesus pays our debt for us or something like that. Again, there's whole, a whole other set of metaphors out there that aren't quite so banking or transactional. Um, but yeah, those are two of those really, really strong sort of transactional worlds, the the legal system and the, the financial transactional kind of imagery. And this seems like it's steeped in that. And see, I don't see that at all. Like, Ooh. I don't see a transaction I see it as like, how can I fall more in love with Jesus? Because yeah. this okay. is his conversion, him. Yeah. So like, I'm interested. I want the Wesley brothers were both steeped in scripture. They were sure. raised by, by a godly mother who you know read scripture to them all the time. Everything they write is just steeped in scripture. Um, this comes from a couple of verses in Ephesians chapter one, talking about the redemption um, through the blood of Jesus. And so I see it as like, okay, I have, you know, I believe that God loves me, that Jesus loves me, even me a sinner to use sure. his brother's words from a couple of days later. And so like, how do I fall more in love with him? Sure. So rather unless... than that transaction, you know, that you're talking about like that banking kind of transaction language. Well, it's not so. So to me, it's not so much transactional, and I think that this might be a play on words, right? Because you're talking mm-hmm. about being interested right. versus mm-hmm. interest, yeah. as in like a share in a share in, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I guess that's um, but but that is a play on words, right? Like, because interest mm-hmm. in the English language can mean both things, right? Yeah, um, both the share in and I'm interested, as in like I um you know, my curiosity is peaked or right. I want to learn more or, you know, this is something I like to talk about. Um, right. You know, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. play on words. My well, and when you go deeper into this verse, died he for me who caused his pain for me, for him to death pursued. Right. Like, I think it, it, that lends it more towards like, really, how could Jesus have done this for me? Sure. Why would Jesus do this for me? And it's, it's, I mean, it, like like so many great, great hymns 
that sort of meditate on this objective fact of Jesus is willing to go to the cross and that make the connection. But it's for me in particular, that mm-hmm. that's a, such an important move. Like I think of um, uh, my song is love unknown uh, that has a similar move that sort of walks through the story of Jesus passion and death and keeps moving it toward he did this for me this is my friend he gave his life for me even though i'm you know among those who betrayed him that kind of thing um i i I guess i i even imagine that the 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 play on words you were talking about sarah that interest in the savior's blood that interest language probably in english are more more um colloquial use of like i have an interest like this is a hobby or an area of curiosity Mm -hmm. probably grew out of that more technical transactional sort of uh sense first is my guess um and i guess even the fact that he talked about an interest in the savior's blood like he's it's not just jesus my friend but it's in particular jesus the one who dies for me so like he's clearly Mm -hmm. steeped in not just jesus as interesting person or even jesus as friend that's not to deny that but it's that jesus is the one who's willing to lay down his life for me um so like you can't get away from that like atonement. Th- this is about in some sense atonement, but it's also this one who died for me. It's not it's not cold and distant. It's he loves me. So I mean that both are true at the same time. You have to understand, but both John and Charles before they had their Aldersgate moments, for lack of a better term, for both of them, um, they were ordained clergy. They were right. Anglican clergy, right? And they were preaching and doing all the right things, but they were still struggling with their faith and like. They got it mentally. They didn't get it deep spiritually into their hearts. Like they didn't quite understand that until they right. had those moments in May of um, seventeen thirty-eight, and then it's it became like it just rejuvenated their preaching, their writing, everything that they did. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's almost like that line uh, a couple of uh, uh, episodes back in a previous series. We talked about that insight of uh, Kierkegaard who, in the midst of 19th century Denmark talked about living in a land where everyone is a Christian and no one is a Christian. That if you're in a place mm-hmm. where, you know, culturally everybody is a part of this organized institution called Christendom, then sure, everybody just by being a citizen of the country is nominally a Christian. But to make it real, that's another leap. And that mm-hmm. certainly that's a part of English history as well. Once you have a Church of England and once you're born a citizen in England, you're christened and are a member of the Church of England, you might might or might not you know care a whiff about jesus but if it becomes real to you there's going to come a point when oh well, yeah all those things we've been saying before all those things i was taught to believe oh yeah it's true it's for true. me mm-hmm. yeah and it's i mean these are go ahead these are pks too you know they're, right. they're pastor's kids and their grandfather was a pastor so i mean it's just kind of yeah that christendom was built into them yeah yeah it's it's interesting um this reminds me of um, a, a piece that comes to my memory from um, Martin Luther's writing about um, how you know you are ready to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. And it's something that I often talk with our young kids about when we're doing communion instruction, that there's a, a point at which Luther says in one of his writings, like, it's at the point when you can believe the words, this is given for you. Um, so that it's less about, can you draw mm-hmm. a diagram about how Jesus is metaphysically present? Yeah. Or do you have a, an ontological philosophy of how Christ can be present in the bread or what the cross does or anything like that? But it's that when it hits home, this is for you. And it seems to me like at, at, over and over and over again in this hymn text is Wesley wrestling with or sort of like the light bulb coming on of like these words that I've talked about, like like it was an uh, an abstract academic subject somewhere else. Oh, it's for me. And when that when it dawns on you, this is for you. 
it becomes real. And I think that really comes out a little bit later in the hymn in verse four. Mm -hmm. And this is like my all-time favorite verse. If I had to pick a favorite verse of a favorite hymn, this is it. Um, Wesley writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So, you know, that, I don't know. I just, I love that line. What were you going to say about it? Was it like it, it's it, it's it, that same moment of like it's not that God changed, but all of a sudden I changed and realized what had been true all along. Mm-hmm. It in some ways this reminds me of um, uh, I think it might be a Richard Rohr insight, but um, I've seen it attributed the same thought to a number of folks. But that whatever happens at the cross isn't about changing God's mind about us, but about changing our mind about how God relates to us already. Um, and that recognition that it's not like that God needs uh, like is is bloodthirsty and needs a certain amount of like suffering in order to stop hating us and start loving us. But it is the very love of God that leads to the cross. And that when I recognize that, oh, my goodness, I realize this is how God has loved me all along already. It's, it feels like that it's, it's that recognition is that sort of, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. it's not that God hated me yesterday. And now because I did the right religious ritual, God loves me. God loved me. And I just realized it. Yeah, and it, and again, because the Wesleys are so steeped in scripture, this comes from there's a couple of different places in Acts. Um, but I'm thinking particularly one where Peter is imprisoned and an angel comes to him and he you busts know him out. The, yeah. he busts him out. And I mean this is exactly what Wesley is describing here. You know, that sure. there's this bright light and the doors are open and Peter is able to just his chains literally fall off. Yeah. And he walks out the door. Yeah. Um that's something cool to to call attention to that sometimes what good hymn texts do is they invite us to play with a biblical story and see ourselves as characters and not to mm-hmm. uh you know pretend that that we are or have all the same things in common but to say yeah imagine yourself in this scene and without without having to to give all the nods you know doesn't have to to give all the the setting of that story from acts enough to suggest it's like being a prisoner set free which for that matter isn't just about acts but over and over and over again there's imagery of when god acts it's like the prisoners being set free i mean it's jesus in his nazareth sermon you know quoting isaiah mm-hmm. um just to, to let the captives go free and and release for the prisoners that over and over again that's how god operates there's a, another line in the the end of the third verse that feels very much along a similar line to me. Uh, at the end, he talks about his mercy, all immense and free for, oh, my God, oh my it God. Found, found out me. Out. That that, mm-hmm. that to me feels very cat hold, uh, but also very much that sort of preemptive mm-hmm. uh, grace that is such a part of some strands of Wesleyan thought and, and uh, of other Reformation thinkers as well. That idea that it's not like God is sitting up in heaven saying, well, you got to make the first move, humans, but that God is always preveniently reaching out to us. And it's at those moments that we realize God has already been seeking us out that we are able to say yes back. Yeah, I mean, that if if there's any hymn line that Charles has written, and I don't know all of his hymns because he wrote hundreds of them, mm-hmm. most of which have kind of been lost over the years. Like if there's one that describes prevenient grace, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that that grace finds us before we yeah. ever go looking. Yes, yeah. this this hymn might be listed under justifying grace or sanctifying grace, but like 
that is prevenient grace that, you know, that, that grace that goes before us and finds us yeah. out before. And that's what I think Charles and John both experienced when they had yeah. their heart strangely war moments um, that, okay, that grace that I've been preaching about all these years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's there for me too. And this is a reminder too, I suppose that while we have these distinctions that may be helpful uh, like, well, there's convenient grace and justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And so, to some degree, these things blur together the same way we talk about mm -hmm. individual colors, like red and orange and yellow are separate colors, but those really all blur from one to another. Um, yeah. And that it, it's a spectrum rather than a binary one or the other kind of a thing. Um, and recognizing that grace is like that, that there's a way of grace from beginning to end has been seeking us out and claims us and saves us and makes us new creations, all those. In, in some ways, this reminds me, too, and this maybe doesn't surprise me as I think about it, because uh, the Wesleys, uh, their personal story sounds so much like the the journey or conversion of St. Augustine, um, how much Augustine's mm -hmm. theology has that similar sort of notion of when he came to faith, he realized, as he reflected on it in, in the confessions, uh, that God had been seeking him out for a long, long time. And he was late to the party to realize it, but that it was God had been at work behind the scenes all along through all those things. And that the moment that he realizes it is, is the, the moment that in some sense it begins for him, but God had been already seeking and pursuing and that God wasn't going to give up on him no matter what. That mm -hmm. That realization is humbling, but also really beautiful. It's also... Um, there's a sense of just how precious and beloved you are that God's willing to go to all that length, even if it's humbling to go, oh my goodness, I'm only now realizing <laughs> that you were seeking me out all along. Augustine has a way too of like, without even realizing it, spewing into allusions and references to scriptures left and right, where it's like, can you not think in biblical quotations, Augustine? And <laughs> it seems like him, like the West is like, nope, but just once I started, just, it just doesn't stop. <laughs> Yeah, I like I said, I didn't realize how many references there really were in this hymn. Our hymnal lists one. It it lists, you know, one of the prison escapes from Acts. But as I was doing some research on it, every phrase almost I mean, some of them are a bit of a stretch, mm -hmm. but almost every phrase has some sort of biblical reference that it, it goes back to, which yeah. is just astounding. Um because I know like I, I, I think I know a decent amount of scripture myself. Yeah. And I can kind of semi quote things, but to know you know, but not the way, you know, John and Charles could to the yeah. point that they can either quote it while they're just thinking of it or, you know, allude to something. Um Yeah, there there's a certain breathing in of scripture that you have to be able to do in order to be and I don't mm -hmm. want to say effortlessly. Yeah do this and when you're writing a hymn because i don't know how effortlessly they right. like it was for them because yeah. i wasn't i wasn't there i didn't experience right. it um but it's yeah there 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 has to be a living and breathing in scripture that needs to happen to be able to have almost every line be a scripture reference and mm -hmm. have it make a whole new hymn and make sense and have it be not um just proof texting hymns but actually like yeah. yes this is actually what this story is about yeah. and that rings true for this hymn as well 
to me, this raises a question that I'm glad I've got two religious professionals to inquire about. Because <laughs> um, in some ways, this, this, this question maybe has been percolating for me for a, a while, and I haven't been able to put words to it. But this is a moment I, I want to ask of you. Um, there is this tension in church life between the richness that is available in our language for people who know the story of scripture, know the patterns of liturgy, know theology, all that kind of thing. And hymn texts like this that are so dense with references or allusions, even phrases that, you know, uh, are echoes of scripture. That If you get it, oh, wow, there's so much richness. And yet at the same time, part of the church's work is also how do you meet people who don't know any of that story mm -hmm. and are walking in for the first time and and have them not be lost with like, well, I don't get what he's talking about. And I, I think in particular, this hymn is a fine job because it doesn't require you to know the ancient Hebrew. But you know that um, the hymn text, uh, um, uh, here I raise my Ebenezer, you know, hither mm -hmm. by that I've yeah. come, right? And I don't know how many times over the years people have stopped and like sometimes will ask me, what's an Ebenezer? Because their immediate reference is Scrooge <laughs> from A Christmas Carol. And no, it's, mm -hmm. it's the Hebrew line from the story in Samuel about setting up the rock. And it's symbolically the Lord has been my help. And Ebenezer means the Lord's been my help. Um, but like that's a lot of backstory you have to know for that line to make any sense at all. And I've seen him paraphrases that change that text to remove that. But then it's like you're settling for, well, let's just not have this text be as meaningful because some people will be confused. And how, how do you deal with that tension that like, here's a really, really rich hymn text that's got a lot of beauty in it. And so and he Wesley has poured his heart into this uh, and it's oozing with scripture references. You almost need to do like, Sarah, you talked about last episode, almost having a moment to preach about the hymn text itself or to say, we need to have right. a separate moment to talk about all that's going on here. But how do you deal I, with that in your life? I think that this is such a great question. Um, we, ex uh, my seminary community, we had a worship experience that was, that attempted it in a, in a very, attempted it in a way and I'm not convinced that it was the best way or a good way it was just a way okay. um, because our seminary was pretty committed at that time to try to use gender neutral language for God not for Jesus because Jesus was clearly biologically male while here on earth but God has um, used both male imagery female imagery uh, throughout the Bible. And, you know, so it was as much as possible, try to use gender neutral language for God. And you run into some sticky situations with hymns. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Our, our most recent hymnal, the red hymnal, the evangelical Lutheran worship book took a lot of these hymns and changed the language so that God was more gender neutral. But there was one worship service where uh, the, the group, students who put together this worship um took i think it was one of the wesleyan hymns and it didn't change the the language because the wesley brothers in particular was yeah. very like do not change my hymns like yeah. i wrote what i wrote and i meant what i wrote <laughs> and you don't change it mm -hmm. and so they had like a paragraph in the bulletin that explained that Mm -hmm. And it was very much like, no, I, again, I wrote what I wrote and I meant what I wrote. And <laughs> this is the language that I chose and used on purpose. Right. right. And um, so it, it sometimes does get like, you know, how do you address that in a healthy way? That's not just like, 
bulldozing people but like because right. again because just a note in the bulletin there isn't there wasn't a whole lot of room for conversation but like it's also true that was upholding the hem writers um wishes yeah and we talked before that- when we did did an episode on his on Wesley's Hark the what we call Hark the Herald Angel thing. It was like Hark the, Hark the Welkin, yeah, the Welkin something saying, yeah. And like so, and we talked about how that's a word that 21st century <laughs> English speakers don't know anymore. Um, yeah. And that okay, I get why an earlier generation of paraphrasers said, okay, nobody knows what a Welkin is, but Hark the Herald Angel thing. Maybe we got a shot. People understand mm-hmm. it. Um, and that. This is this is another form of that same challenge of where do you, and how do you decide where is the line of this one is worth changing this one's not this will do a paragraph that I mean like that that's and maybe it's case by case context by context as well um, in a seminary setting you can afford to be a little more academic and a little less mm-hmm. user friendly and you can say mm-hmm. you know we're all seminary students here you all know there's a bunch of books in the library to talk about the history of him text and whatever. Um, but like on a Sunday morning, we're always threading the needle between there are people who've gone to church every Sunday of their whole lives and they are so immersed in the scriptures, they probably, you know, start leaking scripture references without realizing it. And there may be people who are walking in for the first time and don't know their Ebenezer's. <laughs> um, and I guess like, how, how do you deal with that in, in congregational setting, which is a little bit different than a seminary setting? So to use that exact example, Stephen, the Ebenezer. Okay. And I'm ashamed that it took me as long as it did to figure out what that meant. Because I love that <laughs> hymn. But I, I just never thought to, you know, look up what an Ebenezer was besides Scrooge. Um, <laughs> because that, again, one of my favorite well, books. You should um, lift him up, though. That's great. Because his heart was also strangely warmed. Um, yes. Um, but anytime I sing that, and I don't care how many times I might sing it in, in any single appointment, I try to either before or after the hymn real quickly be like, anybody know what an Ebenezer is? Mm-hmm. And give them just a little snippet yeah. of, you know, it's a stone of help from the story of Samuel. Like, right. you know, right. you want to go look it up more? Go Google Ebenezer and Samuel. Yeah. Like, but it's just I... that little snippet to kind of give it to them so they know, oh, that's what we're thinking about, not Scrooge. I saw... um something else recently it was um a way of doing it in the bulletin that wasn't just like a paragraph at the end of Mm -hmm. like in the in the announcements Mm -hmm. but it was um a church that does uh what i like to call an all-inclusive bulletin so like you don't need your hymnal for anything it has all the liturgy all the readings all the prayers all the hymns just in the bulletin so like it's a it's a little booklet kind of thing and they did a bulletin and I don't I don't know if they did this every Sunday or if it was just occasionally but they would do what kind of looked like a study bible edition of the bulletin mm-hmm. so like like um the majority of the page was the bulletin but then there was like a thin column off yeah. to the side that had would have little mm-hmm. pop out notes yeah. um and it, it it was great because like our liturgy especially in the Lutheran church is often from scripture, but like mm-hmm. you don't often realize it. But yeah. they were mm-hmm. all able to have like little pop outs of like, oh, this is a reference to Romans eight. Right. Oh, this is a reference to Genesis thirteen or or whatever it was. Um, so they were able to do some of those like little yeah. pop out things of like saying, mm-hmm. this is where this is from, or here's a quick quick definition for you. Um, and it was it was really neat. 
Yeah. We did that for a while. There was a, a, I think it was around the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when that was a milestone we were marking uh, some years ago. And we, for a whole, I think maybe that whole fall in the one church, um, created a book that we were going to use all throughout the fall. It had a selection of hymns that were like famous Lutheran voices or some of Luther's hymns and Bonhoeffer's and other hymn writers, things like that in the back that we were going to use this set that we created for the fall that year. And we did margin notes as well in it that could talk about not just forms or structures like, hey, what's a Kyrie? Where does that come from? But yeah, even like, did did you realize this is... and it was it was cool you never know what's going to stick with anybody as far as if it was useful for them but it, it felt like that was a good way of trying to do that education of our heritage as well um, rather than just assuming people are up to speed or leaving them in the dust without knowing what was going on oh and then a couple of years ago it was 2018 so i think like the year after the 500th anniversary uh, it was the 200th anniversary of silent night mm-hmm and I did a series during Advent on the stories behind the hymns. And I picked out like four Christmas hymns. And um, some of them I did kind of what we're doing here with this podcast and looked at like the scriptures they were based off of. Mm-hmm. Others just, you know, kind of the story behind them was part of the sermon, like the story behind Silent Night, why why it was written and how it came to be and everything. Um, and I I had a lot of fun with that. I know being a Methodist, I have a little bit more leeway to do that. Um, because we're not restrict, you know, not to say that you all as Lutherans are restricted to the lectionary, but you you tend to focus more on that. We do um, like where, our lectionary. Where I was more of a <laughs> serious preacher before I came to this appointment. I was a lectionary preacher for a while, and I'm currently in a series right now for the summer. Um, but you know, trying to find those opportunities where where I can, um, yeah, you know, I would love to do a series on a whole bunch of hymns, maybe like having the congregation, okay, what are your favorite hymns? And then picking a few out, um, probably including this one because Mm -hmm. it's mine uh, and saying, you know, either the story behind it or how it connects to scripture. um, It's just, it was a fun challenge for me to do that. And I'd like to do it again, maybe even for a longer series. I think that's a helpful, maybe jumping off point for us is that, in our wider life as church that it's possible you don't just have to sing a song and leave it never touch it again but like how can we create those moments whether it's in worship with a little spoken blurb or something printed or create a forum where we can talk about and do this kind of conversation even conversation like we're having now with a larger group and that can be really enriching um because hymns have a way of bringing together a whole bunch of scriptures so there's a lot of mm-hmm. faith that's being learned and taught there that wouldn't quite work as uh, a bible study because there's like a bunch of bible passages in any given hymn but also to look at the history and what does it mean and where does it put you that kind of thing too yeah well and then there's always you know the west has understood the importance of hymns teaching theology clearly yeah. um and there's that and i think we've talked about this before in the podcast too how Charles wrote to bar tunes mm-hmm. of the day. And a lot of people think those are like bar tunes, like what you think. Um, all I can think of is whose line is anyway that, you know, Heidi, Heidi, Heidi. But that that's not what they say. It, it's more like a style of music, but um, you know, we, we've forgotten now with the literacy rate that, where it is now compared to where it was 300 years ago, 200 years ago, that 
you know, yeah, we can go home and read our own Bibles. You couldn't do that necessarily in Wesley's yeah. day. Sure, sure. But you walk away with the hymns, you know, singing that in your head, and that's right. helping you kind of understand and get pieces of the biblical story that, like we said in previous episodes, you don't necessarily get, you don't go home repeating a line from the sermon. You right. go home singing a line from the last hymn. Right, right. And I think it's worth, too, like that in, in our moment in the 21st century, even the assumption that people can read music notation is, is mm-hmm. if there was maybe a oh, time gotcha. where you can assume a large number of the population uh, could read music or at least a large number of church folk could, but like that's not necessarily an assumption anymore. And uh, if you can find hymn tunes that are singable and that don't require you to know how to read music in order to see where the melody is going, that can be helpful too. So whether it's borrowing a familiar tune, piggybacking or just writing things that are singable rather than trying to show off your musical chops when you're the composer sometimes <laughs> seems to happen. Um, I mean, that that's, again, it's, it's a matter of pastoral care for the person writing the music mm-hmm. is how, how will this stick in somebody's ear, not just for the sake of me being popular as hymn writer, but because if this is going to make a difference, you want it to be something that people will remember. And with the use of screens, at least in my churches, you know, both my churches use screens on Sunday morning. So you, you don't have to pick up a hymnal. Right, right. Yeah, you know, so you don't even see the music; you just see words. Right. Um, so, anything else you want to make sure we know about, or that our listeners know about this particular hymn text? All I'm going to say is, if you ever find yourself singing this hymn text, sing it with everything you have, and hopefully, you have an organist or a pianist that is not going to drag it along. So. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's something that, that's meant to be sung, not so fast that you can't sing it, but with a good pace and with lots of enthusiasm and joy. All right, everybody, there's your challenge. Sing it loud, sing it joyfully for Charles Wesley <laughs> and Erica's sake. And join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. <laughs> See y'all. Bye.